Uh, like I said, we've got a lot to get to, so we're going to get right at it. No story today. This weekend, we're continuing on in our teaching series, which we are calling What We All Believe in Christianity. Three weeks ago, Clyde kicked off this series by looking at Roman Catholicism. Two weeks ago, we were reminded of the Great Schism in 1054 AD that led to the founding of the Orthodox Church. And then last week, looked at Anglicanism, the Middle Way. And in case you missed any of these, you can go to our website and download the video and be all caught up. And now today, we're going to look at the Reformation, that protest movement that broke from Rome in the 16th century. And as we do, we'll be following the same pattern as we had the last few weekends, where we'll be looking to answer three questions. Three questions. Where did the movement come from? What do they believe? And what can we learn from them today? And so we'll begin. Where did the movement come from? How did the Reformation come about? And I'm going to just kind of start with the antecedents, the factors which led up to the Reformation, because there's many of them. And I'm just going to focus on four. Four factors that led to the Reformation. First, the Renaissance movement and mindset. In many ways, the Reformation was just a logical outcome of the Renaissance, which stressed individualism and encouraged a questioning attitude. During this time, there was also a rediscovery of the classics of literature, and people began to read again, which leads into our second point, Gutenberg's printing press. By the middle of the 15th century, Johannes Gutenberg had designed and built the first movable printing press, and this invention made God's word and Protestant ideas readily available to the masses. It wasn't that these reformers were the first to have these ideas, but they were the first ones to distribute them to a wider audience. The third factor, European nationalism. At this time, there was a rise in patriotic pride across Europe. There was an emerging middle class that were, frankly, sick of paying taxes to Rome and wanted their lands back. And these attitudes made people more willing to break from Rome. And finally, fourthly, there was corruption within the medieval Roman church. And I want to be clear here. There were good popes. There were some good popes who attempted to implement reforms, who did contribute to restore education and culture to society. But overall, the picture painted by the church in the late Middle Ages is one of greed and corruption at all levels. There was simony, the buying and selling of church office. There was rampant immorality. There was one pope who was supposed to be celibate who had seven kids by four different women. And there was the selling of indulgences. An indulgent was a letter of pardon from the Roman church bought for money that would supposedly free them from the temporal effects of sin. And at this time, this practice was being greatly abused by the Roman church who just would often peddle these indulgences so they could raise money for their various projects. Now, again, it should be noted that the corruption of the Roman church was challenged by several people in the Middle Ages. Last week, Clyde spoke of John Wycliffe, who in the 14th century, among other things, spoke out against the immorality of the priests in that day. Wycliffe was excommunicated for his views, and then decades after his death, the church dug up his body and burnt him. So I guess they weren't real happy with him. Then, in the 15th century, John Huss began to speak against the abuses of selling indulgences. For his views, Huss was declared an obstinate heretic and was burned at the stake. Again, the reformers we'll speak of today were not the first to seek reform, but they were the first to break from Rome. And so as Europe moved into the 16th century, we had a Renaissance mindset, the printing press, the rise of nationalism, and a largely corrupt Roman church. 
And into this setting came leaders with strong personalities and even stronger convictions. And so we'll begin today with Martin Luther. I'm going to cover four of them. It is going to be firehose theology or history, I guess. And so I apologize. If you need a coffee, this would be a really good time for you to have one, probably. We begin with Martin Luther. Martin Luther grew up in a very harsh home and developed this image of God as an angry judge who was always displeased with him. Even when he became a priest at age 24, he still couldn't shake the feeling that he was unworthy of God's love. And so he tried harder. He prayed. He fasted. He punished his body. He went to confession as often as possible, horrified that he might forget some sin. Over and over again, he went, spent hours examining his thoughts and his actions. And the more he did, the more sin he found in his life, which kind of sent him into despair. It was at this time in his life, kind of in the midst of a spiritual crisis, that his mentor ordered him to begin teaching scripture at the new University of Wittenberg. Kind of a strange time to send him going there, but anyways, whatever. So he got sent there, and Luther took to his new role, and he began to find answers to his questions in scripture. And then in the year 1515, Luther began to lecture from the book of Romans. And as he read through Romans, Paul's words began to kind of nod his soul, really, and there's one verse in particular in or sorry Romans chapter 1 Romans chapter 1 beginning in verse 16 that kind of really caused him to think and this is what it reads for i am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of god for salvation to everyone who believes for in it the righteousness of god is revealed from faith for faith as it is written the righteous shall live by faith Viewing God as an angry judge, Luther had always deeply struggled with the concept of the justice or the righteousness of God. But finally, after a long spiritual battle, Luther came to a surprising conclusion that the righteousness of God was not, did not refer to God's punishment of sinners as he had been taught growing up, but rather that the righteousness of God was referring to God's own righteousness, which is given as a free gift to those who live by faith in Jesus. This understanding changed Luther's life. And this is what he later wrote about that time. I felt that I had been born anew and that the gates of heaven had been opened. The whole of scripture gained a new meaning. And from that point on, the phrase, the righteousness of God, no longer filled me with hatred, but rather became unspeakably sweet by virtue of a great love. And so Luther began to teach his students his new understanding of the gospel. And over time, most of his colleagues at the University of Wittenberg also came to Luther's understanding of this good news. Eventually, Luther kind of became convinced that he must challenge some of the traditional views of the church. And so he wrote 97 theses, where he argued against the main tenets of theology. Luther had no desire to protest against the church, but he hoped to spark a great debate so that he would have an audience to share his new understandings about the gospel. However, much to his disappointment, these theses garnered no interest from anyone outside his university. And so, just a little while later, when a church salesman became peddling uh, indulgences near Wittenberg, Luther thought nothing of composing another 95 theses as an invitation to yet another debate. Luther had no expectation that this debate would garner any more attention than his last one. But it was Pope Leo X that Luther was attacking. It was the Pope who had authorized these great push on indulgences because he wanted to raise money to finish building the Basilica of St. Peter in Rome. So this wonderful basilica, kind of the pride of Catholicism, 
is actually one of the indirect causes of the Reformation. Now, the salesman of these indulgences, a guy named John Tetzel, would say anything to make a sale. Among other things, he claimed, an indulgence that they sold made the sinner cleaner than Adam before the fall, and that the seller of indulgences has as much power as the cross of Christ. And in response to these kind of ridiculous statements, Luther wrote his 95 Theses with a righteous indignation that hadn't been part of his previous writings. For example, thesis number 32 stated, they will be condemned eternally together with their false teachers who believe themselves sure of salvation because they have letters of pardon. Luther published these 95 theses on October 31st, 1517, and soon printers were spreading copies everywhere of them throughout Germany. And the Pope and others in seats of power were outraged. And so over the next several years, Luther had many meetings with various church and political officers. None were particularly interested in discussing Luther's views. They simply wanted him to recant his statements. Luther, in turn, told them that he was willing to recant if only he could be convinced from scriptures that what he said was wrong. No one tried to change his mind. Eventually, in 1520, the Pope ordered all books by Martin Luther to be burned, and he was excommunicated. And so Luther was forced to break from Rome. About a year later, some supporters of Luther kidnapped him for his own protection and took him into hiding at the Wartburg Castle. During that year in hiding, Luther translated the New Testament to German, developed a catechism, and wrote, among other hymns, A Mighty Fortress is Thy God. And if you read the words from that and you know what he walked through, it's right in context. He's basically writing about what he was experiencing. More importantly, though, while Luther was in exile, his colleagues in Wittenberg continued the task of reforming the church and began to implement reforms rapidly. For instance, worship was simplified, German was substituted for Latin, the masses for the dead were abolished, and the communion cup was offered to the laity. This was the beginnings of Lutheranism. And I'm going to pause. I'm going to give you a moment to step back, to reflect, to catch your breath, to drink some coffee. Is everyone good? You guys look bright, refreshed. All right, let's go. Meanwhile, about that same time in Switzerland, there was a priest named Ulrich Zwingli who taught himself Greek, who immersed himself in scripture, and who came to similar conclusions to those of Luther. By the time Zwingli moved to Zurich in 1518, he was preaching boldly against the sale of indulgences. Now, during this time of Reformation, Switzerland was more free of Rome's influences than were other nations. So when a seller of indulgences arrived in Zurich, Swingley was able to convince the local government that he should be expelled from the city, and he was. And with this kind of support, Zwingli decided to push for other reforms. And so, during Lent of 1522, uh, Zwingli began to preach against the laws of fasting and abstinence. He said that forbidding meat during Lent was unscriptural. And to prove his point, some of his par- parishioners gathered on Lent in the church and openly ate sausages, which... Doesn't seem that rebellious, but it was, and Rome wasn't happy, I guess is the point. Later that same year, Zwingli and 10 other priests publicly protested that clerical celibacy was not biblical and petitioned the church for permission to marry. Their petition was denied, but most of the group, including Zwingli, decided to marry anyways. All these proposed changes to the Roman system of worship led the Zurich City Council to call for a public debate between Zwingli and a representative of the church. 
And so in 1523, the day of the debate arrived, and Swingley defended his beliefs from Scripture. But the representative of the bishop refused, repeatedly refused to respond to Zwingli's views or to appeal to Scripture. And so the Zurich City Council concluded that since no one refuted Zwingli's teachings, he was free to continue to preach them. And this marked Zurich's final break with Rome. And from that point on, the Reformation in Zurich marched on. Zwingli's main goal was to restore true biblical faith and practice that he felt had been lost in the Middle Ages. And so almost immediately, Roman fees for baptisms and burials were eliminated. Monks and nuns were allowed to marry. The mass was abolished. The wine of communion was offered to the laity. And public education was offered to all with no class distinction. So loved were most of these changes that Zwingli's ideas began to spread to other parts of Switzerland. And this is considered the early beginnings of the Reformed tradition. And so we're now down two, two traditions. Do we got the thing up there? Is our PowerPoint work? There we go. Lutheran and Reformed. Two down, two to go. Big breath. Drink a coffee. Now we go. But not all people were pleased. For within Zurich, there were Reformers who claimed that Zwingli had not gone far enough. You see, both Luther and Zwingli believed that the Christian church was mostly healthy through 1000 A.D., but that then it strayed from the true apostolic faith in the Middle Ages. And so their attempt at reforms is to bring the church back to the pre-1000 version of the church. But Zwingli's critics in Zurich believe they were wrong. They believe that true apostolic faith was lost when Constantine combined church and state in 300 AD. These radicals, as they were called, believed that for the church to be truly reformed, they would have to be brought back to the pre-300 AD roots. And I just want to point out, the last two slides, last two slides, those are the two that Clyde sent me. So because you can't see them, it's Clyde's fault. I just wanted to point that out <laughs> to blame him. But Clyde also wanted me to mention here that they're both wrong. Both of these views were wrong, that the true apostolic church has always been part of the church throughout its history, and that there's always been a remnant of faith in every branch of church history. So just... From Clyde to you. There you go. But back to me. Okay. So this, because of these two different views, there was very different views on everything. For both Luther and Zwingli believed that the church and state should be united. That the church should be working hand in hand with the magistrate to bring about a godly society. And that baptism was a sign of membership in a Christian society. But these radicals, or brethren, as they called themselves, believe that in the New Testament there was a marked difference between church and society. The brethren saw the church as a voluntary body that should be called out from society, that should be totally distinct from the civic community. They believed that the heart of the Christian faith was a personal decision to accept God's grace and follow. Thus, they reason, infant baptism must be rejected in favor of believer's baptism or adult baptism because an infant can't choose to follow. The brethren also believed that the Sermon on the Mount must be obeyed literally, and that pacifism was an essential element to the Christian faith. When these brethren realized that Zwingli had no intention of following this path, they decided it was time to start their own congregation. And so on January 21st, 1525, at the fountain in the square of Zurich, Conrad Grebel baptized George Blayrock, who then baptized several others, and a new wing of the Reformation was born. Immediately, immediately, this new movement drew great opposition from both Catholics and from other Protestants. And their enemies began calling them Anabaptists, which means rebaptizers. 
Not only were they angered at their stance on baptism, but their pacifism was considered dangerous, if you can believe it. It was considered dangerous because they thought it would destabilize the society and political order of their society. And so within months, the Anabaptists were banished from Zurich. Within three years, Charles V ordered the death penalty for all who were guilty of rebaptizing. The result being that over the next half dozen years, thousands of Anabaptists who would not defend themselves were martyred for their faith, mostly by other Protestants. They were drowned, they were burned, they were hung, they were forced off the tops of haystacks onto beds of spikes. And so within just a few years, almost all of the first generation of Anabaptist leaders were dead. And one of the consequences was that a second short-lived generation of Anabaptist leaders rose up who turned their backs on pacifism and instead began preaching of a violent revolution. Fortunately, the revolution was put down within a couple of years, and then a third generation of Anabaptist leaders emerged, the most famous of which was Menno Simons. Menno Simons was a Dutch Catholic priest who embraced Anabaptism in 1536. He began to teach against the heirs of the revolutionists and urged people again to embrace pacifism. His followers eventually came to be called Mennonites, of which I am one, I think. And although Mennonites suffered the same persecutions as the other Anabaptists, somehow Menno Simons managed to survive. And over the next few decades, he became a wandering preacher in Holland and Germany. And during that time, he set up an an Anabaptist printing press and wrote extensively, teaching his followers to always obey civic authorities unless they specifically contradict Scripture, to love their neighbors as themselves, and thirdly, to avoid politics, oaths, and bearing arms. By the 20th century, the Mennonites were the main branch of the Anabaptist movement. And so we now we have our third branch there in the Reformation stream. Again, another break. How are you guys doing? You doing okay? You with me so far? Mosaic, you guys are all asleep. I know you. You're asleep right now. You can come back in a bit. Okay, fourth. Fourth guy. Now, about the same time this Anabaptist movement was beginning, there was another young reformer starting out who had become to be known as the greatest theologian of his time. His name is John Calvin. John Calvin grew up near Paris where he studied law and later literature and it soon became apparent he was a brilliant scholar. When Calvin was about 23 years old, he had some sort of conversion experience which he never really spoke about other than to say that through the scriptures, God subdued my heart to teachableness. And from then on, Calvin was a fervent believer. Like Luther, Calvin had no intention of breaking with the Roman church. But when he and some friends began to talk of their desire to see reforms within the church, they were forced to flee Paris. Eventually, Calvin went into exile in Switzerland, where he began to write in 1535. His main project was a short summary of the Christian faith from a Protestant viewpoint. His work was called Institutes of the Christian Religion, and it was an immediate and surprising success. The first edition was sold out within nine months. And from that point on, Calvin continued to work on successive editions of the Institutes for the rest of his life. His first edition was like eight chapters. When he died, it was 79. So he got a little extra work done. And that was Calvin's plan for his life. He did not see his gifts as that of pastor or leader, but as scholar and author who was called to a quiet, reflective life. But it didn't work out that way. He arrived in Geneva in 1536 with the intention of spending one night there and then passing on. But a fiery Protestant leader named William Farrell met with him 
and spent the night trying to convince Calvin to stay to help lead this young Protestant city that was struggling deep with immorality. Pharaoh ended their meeting with these words, May God condemn your repose and the calm you seek for your study if before such a great need you withdraw and refuse to help. Imagine someone saying that to you. Pharaoh's guilt trip worked. Calvin stayed in Geneva and soon became the central figure in the religious life of the city. And Calvin's views were severe. He believed that if the religious life were to conform to the principles of the Reformation, it was necessary to impose to impose a confession of faith on the citizens of Geneva and then excommunicate anyone who is unrepentant or unwilling to follow. And over the next two decades, John Calvin set up a new church government and a new liturgy in an attempt to create a holy city. By all accounts, Calvin went way overboard trying to micromanage every aspect of civic life and by severely disciplining those who didn't follow. But Calvin also greatly improved Geneva in many ways. So much so that one of Calvin's students, a man named John Knox, called Geneva the purest school of Christ on earth. And then John Knox took Calvin's theology and church structure back to Scotland and founded what became known as Presbyterianism. Presbyterianism. And that's all the time we have to talk about Presbyterianism. So if you're a presbyter, I apologize, I just ran out of time. So there's kind of the four main branches of the Reformation. In a nutshell, there you go. All right, finally we get to move on to our second question. Aren't you excited? Our second question. What do they believe? What were the major tenets, theological emphasis to come out of the Reformation? There were many. I'm just going to focus on three. Three. First is the word, the centrality of Scripture, what Luther called sola scriptura, or Scripture alone. In contrast to the Roman Catholicism, which viewed the tradition of the church as being of equal footing as Scripture, The reformers all agreed that the Bible was the last word on all matters of faith and practice. That scripture outweighed all other influences. It was the final authority. And this belief drove the reformers to make two significant changes in the life of the church. First, they changed the focus of the worship service. They changed the focus of the worship service. In Roman Catholicism, as Clyde noted a few weeks ago, the focus is on the Eucharist, on the receiving of God's grace through the Eucharist meal. Many Catholic priests won't speak longer than five or six minutes because they don't want the focus to be on their words, but rather on receiving communion. Luther, Zwingli, and Calvin changed all that. The focus became on the word of God and the sermon and the pulpit. And so you might have been wondering why this nice piece of furniture returned today. It returned as a prop to show that during the Reformation, the pulpit took primacy over the altar. And the sermon replaced the Mass. It's not that communion or the altar were unimportant, but it was believed that God spoke most clearly to us through Scripture. So, so central part of worship was about hearing the Word of God. And so in the church building, the Reformers put the pulpit at the forefront, and the altar was often put in the background. John Calvin, for instance, began preaching lengthy sermons every Sunday, but only celebrated communion once per month much like we do. And if you grew up in a Protestant church that has any sort of reformed leanings, you probably had a pulpit like this one in the center of the stage um, every Sunday. For instance, the church I grew up in had a pulpit that was about the width of a parking stall, right? It was about like this, and then underneath it on the floor was the altar, and on the altar was a Bible the size of a small suitcase. 
And again, all this was that they changed the focus of the worship service. It was on the word. A second change was that they encouraged their followers to read the scriptures themselves. If the word of God really was the starting point and final authority of all matters of faith and practice, then it only seemed logical to get the scriptures into the hands of the people that they could read it for themselves. You see, up until this time, the church had been teaching that only the clergy should read and interpret scripture. And even though Latin was pretty much a dead language by the 8th century, the 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 tradition of the church was that their worship services were in Latin. And so one of the first orders of business for each reformer was to get the Bible in the language of their people. And so Luther translated the whole Bible into German. Menno Simon set up a printing press that it could be translated. Calvin founded a biblical training school and wrote commentaries on 49 biblical books. Of primary importance to all these reformers was getting the word of God in the vernacular of their people. The centrality of scripture is the first theological point of change. Is that what I'm saying? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. All right, a second. I'm confused and I'm tired. Okay, Mosaic, you with me? Come back, please. Okay, a second theological emphasis to come out of the Reformation is we are saved by grace through faith. We are saved by grace through faith. Luther popularized the sayings grace alone and faith alone, but all the Reformers taught these spiritual truths. And some passages that they pointed to uh, are Romans 3, And Ephesians chapter 2. And so Romans 3, I'll read that first. Romans 3, beginning in verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Luther called this Romans passage the chief point, the central place, of the whole Bible. And again, another, another important passage for the Reformers was Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. Well-known verses. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. In the medieval church, theologians believed that righteousness, that being made right with God, was a joint process between God and humanity, where the person was responsible for a certain degree of external deeds and that faith was something that could be acquired through knowledge or instruction. The reformers rejected these ideas, instead claimed that being in right relationship with God was a free gift of grace offered by God as an exchange, as an exchange where God, through the cross of Christ, would declare one not guilty of their sins and then transfer to that person Christ's perfect righteousness. If only, they would do this, if only one would accept and trust what Christ had accomplished and then turn and follow him as Lord. That was the understanding of grace and faith that the Reformers taught, and that was the cornerstone of the Reformers' theology. Which leads us to another cornerstone, a third theological emphasis, which is the priesthood of all believers. The priesthood of all believers. Stated simply, this doctrine affirms the New Testament teaching that all Christians have equal and direct access to God. Again, at that time in the medieval church, they were teaching that salvation was a joint process between God and the Christian. That Jesus' work on the cross took care of the curse of original sin, but that now we are responsible to repent of all of our individual sins and receive God's saving grace through the sacraments of the church. 
primarily the sacrament of confession, where one would go and confess their sins to a priest and then receive absolution of their sins from that priest. And at this point, I just want to make a clear statement. I think most of us Protestants could learn a thing or two about confessing to one another from our Catholic brothers and sisters. For throughout the scriptures, we are called to live in community and to confess to one another our burdens, our weaknesses, our sins that we weigh intercede on one another's behalf. We're called throughout scripture to do that. But this is not done as some sort of means of atoning grace, but rather so we grow closer to God and spur one another on to love and good deeds. Because of Jesus' completed work on the cross, Jesus is my mediator, and I have now direct access to God for my needs. 1 Timothy speaks of this pretty clearly. 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, reads this way. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. As a ransom for all. The priesthood of all believers is the Reformation principle that all Christians have equal and direct access to God. So, we had three there. Priesthood of all believers, saved by grace through faith, and the word. And so now that leads us to our final question. Our final question, what can we learn today? How does the Reformation inform our faith today? And I just quickly want to focus on two things, two questions really. And they are, first of all, are we people of the word? Are we people of the word? The reformers all agreed that the Bible was the final authority in all matters of faith and practice. And so they literally risked their lives to preach it to the masses, to translate into the languages of the day that the people in the 16th century could read the Bible for themselves. And here's why. Here's why. If we look at Hebrews 4 and 2 Timothy, it talks about what the scriptures mean and what they do and what their value is. Hebrews 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And now, 2 Timothy 3. 2 Timothy 3, again, very well-known scriptures. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Is that our view of Scripture? And if so, do our reading habits confirm that? You know, I recognize that not everyone in this room is a reader. And for some of you, reading is very difficult. However, if we're not connected regularly in some way with the Word of God, it's foolish for, it, for us to expect it to somehow mold us into the followers we're called to be. I have good news for you, though. And so here's the good news. There is no one right way to interact with Scripture. There's no one right way to interact with Scripture. And we kind of, as a staff, we kind of came to this conclusion, too. Last year, I don't know, last year, a year ago, two years ago, when we were making those LOL pamphlets, remember that we handed out to everyone, and we're going through the five core practices, and so we're in staff meeting the one day, and we're talking about, you know, how should we encourage people to get into the Word, you know, what kind of practices, and even among our staff, we had such, you know, a wide diversity of opinions. 
Some saw scripture memorization as the key to knowing the Bible. And others on staff kind of enjoy, Clyde enjoys kind of going through 10 or 15 verses and reading them over and over again, trying to get to their deeper meanings and understandings. Some like studying thematically or topically, depending on what was going on in their life. I prefer to read chunks of scripture at a time because I like seeing kind of the overview of the Bible, that I would see the key themes in the larger narrative. All this to say, there is no one way to inter- no one right way to interact with scripture. We're all at different reading levels. We all have different learning styles. We're all at different places in our spiritual journey. And so I say to all of you, all of us, design a scripture interaction plan that works for you. We are fortunate to live in an era of unparalleled biblical resources. We have every kind of study, study Bible possible so that even if you have no background at all in the church, or the Bible, there's these little Coles notes that give you the context and tell you what it means and what the application is. And if you cannot read, we have CDs, we have MP3s, we have DVDs, we have the Bible and all of them. And so regardless of your faith background or your biblical knowledge or your reading abilities or your learning style, there are a range of options of different ways to interact with Scripture. But are we interacting with God's Word? Are we people of the Word? And finally, finally, a second question. Having received God's grace, do we live out that grace? Do we love our neighbor? The reformers all believed that God's gift of grace should so impact our hearts that we should naturally manifest God's love to others. You know, Luther has often been criticized or mistaken that he was so preoccupied with grace that he never wrote about expressing grace to others or loving our neighbors, or performing good deeds. But I just want to read you a little quote from his, from his commentary on Romans. This is what he wrote. Oh, it is a living, busy thing, this grace. It is impossible for it not to be doing good things incessantly. It does not ask whether good works are to be done, but before the question is asked, it has already done this, and is constantly doing them. Whoever does not do such works, however, is an unbeliever. I want to be clear. Luther was very flawed. He was very flawed. But though each reformer was very flawed in many ways, each of them did many practical things to benefit society in their day. Even Calvin, whose attempts at church discipline were awfully badly off the mark, he improved Geneva in so many ways. He guided the development of a sewer system that made Geneva one of the cleanest cities in Europe. He guided the development of quality health and hospital care. He mandated safety rails on upper stories to protect children from falling. Calvin founded a training school, which eventually became the University of Geneva. Every reformer did practical things to benefit society in their day. So how are we influencing society? What practical things are we doing to benefit those who are in our own sphere of influence? In 1539, Menno Simons wrote a little creed that spoke of the love that we should have for others as Christ followers in this world. And this is what it says. It says, True faith cannot lie dormant. It clothes the naked. It feeds the hungry. It comforts the sorrowful. It shelters the destitute. It serves those who harm it. I want you to think about that line. Serves those who harm it. This is from a group who saw, as Anabaptists, thousands of his friends get martyred. It serves those who harm it. It binds up that which is wounded. 
It becomes all things to all people. How are we doing with that? I have a good friend named Chad who uh, lives in the States, got married to a California girl, has lived in the States ever since. And uh, anyways, so about a year ago, they had a guest speaker at their church, and the guy came in and, among other things, began talking about the foster care system in the United States and how messed up it was. And he kind of went on about that. And then at the end, kind of came out with this, concluded with a surprising stat. He said that if just one half of 1% of all the Christian families in the United States who go to church regularly, if just one half of 1% of them adopted a child from foster care, there would be no more child, kids left in foster care in the United States. One half of 1% of all the Christian families in the United States adopted a foster kid. And so that's that really surprised them, and it really kind of touched their heart. And so that week, they were in their small group, and their small group started discussing. And the small group, they are all middle-class families. They all had kids as teenagers. Um, and they were kind of all going, you know, well, you know, we can afford another kid. And so uh, they decided they are going to do some more research on the project and pray about it. And so they did. Uh, just this Wednesday, I was actually in my basement working on this thing. Chad calls me up and goes, hey, how you doing? And I go, great, what's going on? We're in the final stages of adopting a nine-month-old. Both her parents are in correctional facilities. And I go, really? And she, he goes, yeah, Lisa and I, we're taking the plunge. We're doing it. We're almost there. And I, and I started laughing because they haven't changed a diaper in like a decade. And so we're kind of laughing about all the different ways that their life is going to change forever again. And so we're kind of laughing. So we had a good laugh about this for a few minutes. And then he goes, yeah, that's okay. We'll have lots of help. We're the fourth couple in our small group to adopt a foster kid this year. You know what? Not one of those families planned on having any more children. But they saw this need in society that they could help with. And as followers of Christ, they wanted to love their neighbor. Are we willing to love our neighbor? Are we willing to love others as Christ loved us? Just before I conclude in prayer, I'd like us all to read the short creed that I read from Menno Simons. And this is how I'd like to do it. Uh, We're all going to stand. So everyone stand. Mosaic, everyone stand up there too. And so as we stand and we read these words, I want us to think about how we, both corporately and individually, can live them out within our sphere of influence. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to read a line and then you repeat it back to me. All right? And so this is how it goes. True faith cannot lie dormant. It clothes the naked. It feeds the hungry. It comforts the sorrowful. It shelters the destitute. It serves those who harm it. It binds up that which is wounded. It becomes all things to all people. Pray with me. Eternal God, our Father, I pray that this would be true. in our individual hearts, and in our corporate lives. And I pray, Father, uh, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for scripture. Thank you for the message of grace. Thank you for your love, your undeserved love. And I pray that your love and your grace and this new life birthed within us by the power of your spirit would prompt us to want to love our neighbor. I pray that you give us each eyes to see, that we could discern those people within our sphere of influence who need your gracious touch, and that you give us ways in which we can love them as you have loved us. Oh, may this be a place
May this be a lighthouse of hope, this church. May we as individuals each be your ambassadors as we share uh, the wonder of your grace and love with the hurting world. I pray this would be so. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.